Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Zoe podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor Mitch Price. Yo. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? It's going good. Yeah, uh, I feel like I've been busy. I feel like I've been up to a few exciting things, been watching movies, been doing lots of research, which has been both exciting and galvanizing, but also kind of anxiety inducing. I feel like I'm having so many points where I can't tell if I'm really excited or really anxious. Because I'm just kind of amped up. You just you just gonna say you're excited because of the same physiological symptoms. I, I, just gonna I think reframe. So. I think so. So I think I'm, CBT. I'm just very excitable. Good right now. Yeah. What about you? Probably the exact opposite of that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just working a lot, and obviously we're doing all the wedding planning, and it's stressful. Not that exciting. In the, I think it'll get more exciting when the stressful stuff is done. But it's currently just a bit stressful. Everything's just a bit stressful. Cost of living is stressful. Oh, yeah. My lease expires in like two weeks and I'm very scared to see how much my landlord increases my rent by. Just, yeah, things going on in life that are just a bit stressful. Gotta find somewhere to squat. Yeah. I know, right? Uh, one of, what's her name? The one who sings Dance Monkey. She owns like five properties. Oh, Tones and I. Tones and I. Yeah. And she was like oh. really mad because people were squatting one of her Byron Bay properties. As and if I needed another reason not to like. I know, Tones right? I. I know, right? She's a fucking property hoarder. But anyway, so yeah, just kind of tired. Maybe not super excitable, but hopefully that changes. Things are all right though. Like nothing is bad. I'm just tired. I think I just need like a couple of days off to catch up on my laundry and sleep, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of Tones and I. Not really. But I was going to say, what? <laughs> speaking of, of pop music, I just wanted to, to mention something exciting that I did, which was go to Jockstrap a couple nights ago, which is a musical project, an artist, a, a musical duo that I really love. And they were playing at the Mary's Underground. Do you know that place? I have never been there, but I'm aware of it. Mary's Underground? I'm not a big fan of that venue. It was a sold out show because I think Jockstrap has become very, very popular and my friends and I were situated about in the middle of the marsh. We got there when the doors opened, but we ate some food. So we went at the very front and I couldn't see shit. And my friends couldn't see shit. The stage at the very front was like 20 centimeters off the ground. I feel like it just wasn't designed for this kind of like, like crowd, this kind of crowd and this kind of show. And I'm kind of tall. I feel like I'm, I'm a considerably tall I was going to say, person. if you can't see, no one can see. If I can't see, yeah, I can, exactly. Like, I can never see when I go to a concert. I'm like five foot one. So I- <laughs> like that is, you know, normal for me. Yeah. But for you, that's kind of crazy. Anyways, that's a recommendation. Listen to Jockstrap. Well, speaking of, let's just move into our recommendations then. Did you have any other recommendations? I did. I wanted to kind of de-intellectualize my recommendations <laughs> uh, for this week and just recommend, and, and maybe it's a dissuasion because it is truly addictive, but this game, I've just been playing for a couple of years, but I've gone back into it the past couple of weeks. Slay the Spire. You I've, are always playing I'm always game. playing it. I'm playing it on my iPad, your attention. but you can get it on like consoles or on your computer. It's a 
a deck building roguelite, if that means anything. I feel like as a non-gamer girly, as a bimbo, it's like there's cards yeah. and, and monsters have powers and you got to kind of like when you play like Pokemon cards. Yeah. That's the vibe I get. It's like you do a run. So if you die, you restart the game essentially. And you're trying to build a deck. Every time you defeat an enemy, you can add a new card to your deck. So you're trying to- Yeah. So it's like a digital the version of like a card game where there's like monsters and, and each card. It's like plus four points to- yeah, I don't know. Damage. That's fair. <laughs> so if you feel like if that if that sounds interesting and you feel like if wasting you're a, a lot of time, nerd. no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> if you're a massive nerd, yeah, then you, if you're a massive nerd, you probably already know about the game. But this is true. Check it out. Not everyone can be as cool as me. Anyway, <laughs> my recommendation for this week is a book. Going back to the intellectualizing. Sorry, uh, it's called "It's Not About the Burka." And it was published in 2019. So it's like not recent, recent. It's like four years old, but it's like recent enough to still feel very topical at the moment. Uh, it's a collection of essays by Muslim women living in the UK of all different kinds of backgrounds, sexuality, politics. Pretty much all they have in common is being like Muslim women of color in the UK. And it's really good. It's really good. I devoured it. I, I don't think I've ever read anything so fast in my life. There's 17 essays and they're edited by Mariam Khan. And I just really wanted to recommend it because there's a lot of books that I read and I don't recommend every book that I read on the podcast but I feel like there are a couple of key touch points for me the first one being wow I literally am not having an original experience but like in a in a good way but also a sad way Mm. not because I want to own my experience but it's like oh man like I would not wish this upon anybody else but you guys are all experiencing this and probably worse than I am because a lot of the people who wrote this essay are also Muslim women in media just naturally because If you're getting published, you're probably like a writer or a journalist, which quite a few of them are. And the kind of vitriol that they have experienced being Muslim women in the public eye in the UK, which is, you know, famously much more Islamophobic than Australia. And that is a fucking feat, right? Like people are pretty racist here, but they're racist in quite a blasé kind of ignorant way where a lot of the time they don't even like realize that what they're saying is offensive. They're just kind of racist that way. But people in the UK who are racist towards like Muslims, especially like Pakistani Muslims, it's very vitriolic and venomous. It's not like casual racism. It's not accidental racism. It is like outward, hateful, like I want you to suffer racism, which I have actually, funnily enough, the worst kind of vitriol I ever experienced from trolls was actually trolls from the UK back in like, Actually, was it 2019 or 2020? 2019, when I was not let into that. 2019, So the yes. same year this book was... I wish I read this that year. I think it would have really helped my mental health a lot, actually, because it's just like I experienced a lot of vitriol when that story went viral and the mirror linked my Facebook profile in their article. Oh, yeah, that And was then so I got so much fucked hate directly into my DMs from the mirror. Thank you very much, you fucking trash publication. But anyway, so I have some taste of what- They need to look in the mirror (laughs) and think about what they've done. I know, right? I'm sure that they did exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. But I have some taste of what the vitriol is like for women in the UK and I barely made it through like three weeks of that. And these women, that's their whole fucking lives. It's very fucked, very upsetting some of the experiences they have. But the book itself is not upsetting because it's like- all these women who just like, are like, yeah, this fucked thing happens. It gets me down sometimes, but I don't give a fuck because I care about what I want to say. And these are the important things that I believe in. And I found that 
very affirming and inspiring as a Muslim woman. But I also think there's a few essays in there that are compulsory reading for non-Muslim people that want to be friends with Muslim people or that just like don't want to be racist. <laughs> like if you just want to expand your understanding of the world and the women around you, you should read this book. The essays like range from like every topic because it's all these different women on all these different topics. One woman discusses what it was like navigating her identity, being bisexual, but then also being Muslim and obviously the difficulties that come with that. And then another woman is discussing stigma of divorce. And then another woman is talking about working in the media. And then another woman is talking about interfaith relationships. And it's like all these different facets of life. And they're all important. And I think it's the first time in my life that I ever saw Muslim women portrayed with any kind of diversity. And somebody in there, I think it was Yasmin Abdul-Majid, actually, who you guys would know because she's Aussie. She's got an essay in there where she mentions that this is the first time she can just write what she wants because she doesn't feel like she has to represent all Muslim women. You can just be yourself because normally we're hyper aware of the fact that when we're asked to write something or be someone, we have to like be very careful not to say something that is offensive to the Muslim community or to other Muslims. And we have to really be on this very teetering tightrope of like what I can say that still represents me, but also represents my community. And it's so unfair. It's such bullshit. I really felt it when she was like, wow, I can just say what I want because I don't have that pressure on me because we have 17 different Muslim women all speaking about their experiences. And I was like, I feel that. I feel that on a deep soul level as like the only Muslim woman I know in media. (laughs) So yeah, you should read it. I will link it. That was a very long recommendation. I feel like I really got in a role there. Yeah, no, it sounds really interesting. It's really good. You should read some. And there's like specific, you know what? I think I'll list when I recommend it, just the specific chapters I liked as well. Because that way, if somebody doesn't want to read the whole book, they can read the ones that I found the best. But yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool. We actually do have a dissuasion for this week. True. Spicy. Would you like to... Yes, I would. So, we watched The Empire of Light last week. New Sam Mendes, is it? Sean, yes. or which no, one's the Sean singer? Sean Mendes is a singer. The singer, okay. <laughs> it's Sam Mendes, directed by Sam Mendes, who was like the Green Book person. No, 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 no. no that's no. somebody else. The movie is like Green Book, but Mendes did Skyfall and 1917. Right, right. Uh, and some other films. I swear there was somebody on the Green Book that was also on this movie, but I could be wrong. The point, anyway, is that it was very bad. <laughs> yeah. Empire of Light is a bad movie. Don't watch it. It's bad because it really tried... Okay, a lot of reasons. The first one being it has no fucking clue what it's doing. It, it's so scatterbrained. It's, it's so scatterbrained. It has like 14 different plot points and it doesn't really go anywhere with any of them. Like, it's so confused. doesn't know what it wants to be. So many scenes, you're watching it and you're like... This feels like a scene that should be in a different movie. Like, mm. I don't know why it's here. I don't know what it's trying to do. It feels completely out of nowhere. Also, then, it's completely rudimentary and, quite frankly, offensive um, depiction of race. It's very, like, I'm a white person and I want you all to know that I'm not racist. Mm. It's, like, racism from the perspective of a white person. It's, like, that TikTok trend where white girls were, like, crying to the camera and it was, like, POV, my black friend is getting beat by the cops and look how traumatic it is for me. That's literally what this movie is. It's about how traumatic it is for white people when their black friends experience racism. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, the film's about, it's set in the 80s, it's about a theatre called The Empire, which uh, like a middle-aged woman and a young black man work at and they spark a relationship. Which firstly, like just in terms of the narrative, I do not buy that relationship. There is no way that relationship exists. I could not suspend my disbelief for it. Yeah, it's in like the first 15 minutes that it kind of arises and at no point does it actually make Make sense. sense. You're just told that it works and the film insists that it works and you're like, 
I'll go along with it, but you don't actually believe it. You don't, not And that for seems one to be second. the common experience for people viewing the film. They, they get how the relationship operates, but not, like, why? they don't buy into it. Well, it's just, like, it makes no sense why this relationship would spring up and why there would be a mutual attraction between these two people. It mm. makes literally no sense. Then, kind of thematically, it's about the power of cinema, which, like, that's an easy way to fool me. Like, just make a film about, oh, cinema is magical, and it could be a dog shit film, and I'd be like... Yes, so true. <laughs> Film is magic. But even that was just like a tacked on element. And then the kind of underlying aspect is in cinema, racism doesn't exist. Or cinema is a form of escapism where you can leave the world of racism, leave all that behind and sit in a dark room and just experience beauty. Which is so funny because I'm literally watching this movie where I'm watching a black man get beat within an inch of his life. I clearly cannot escape racism in this cinema. Like right. it's so... It just does not even realise its own irony. like, And also, it just never follows through with any of that anyway. Like, It's all about how cinema can help you escape, but no one actually escapes from anything in this movie. You don't even get to see anyone watch a movie for the majority of it. It doesn't follow through with that promise. Mm. Just a bad movie. <sighs> okay, well, let's get into our follow-up and then we can get to today's episode. Yes, I just had a little bit of follow-up from the previous episode on AI and labour. And capitalism, and then also like sexual assault, and it's kind of this amalgamation of issues that we are currently facing and are going to face more and more as AI becomes more prevalent. And while I was editing that podcast, uh, I had all of these thoughts, as I typically do when I edit, because you know, when we're recording, it's just like immediate. And then when I'm editing, I'm kind of lingering over every sentence for about like, you know, four hours. And I'm like, damn, I should have said this, should have said that. So a little bit of follow up in terms of our AI episode is I wanted to introduce this idea of the social factory, which I feel like kind of clarifies some of what we were talking about with AI, or at least the kind of the aspect I'm interested in, which is how AI becomes a new kind of exploitation, how it exploits labor in a new kind of pervasive way, insofar as people treat AI like it creates value from nothing. But if you actually look at how AI operates. It doesn't create labor from nothing, but it kind of is an amalgamation of labor that it has extracted from the internet and from everything put into this machine learning algorithm. So again, you know, it doesn't create value out of nothing. It creates value from human labor, which it's not paying for. It's not giving a wage for this labor because it's just, you know, everything is for the taking from the perspective of AI. And while I was really thinking about that, I was reminded of this idea of it's called the social factory, which kind of arose in the 1960s from the autonomous Marxists in Italy. And I think it's a really interesting topic and even more applicable today. And here's why. Essentially, the social factory is a way of thinking about how, as capitalism has progressed in the past century, what actually constitutes labor has changed. So in the past, you know, work was something that would take place in the factory. If we think of what's called Fordist production, which is essentially industrial production line where everyone's doing repetitive manual tasks. At that point, labor was confined to the factory. It was confined to a given space. But in what we call post-Fordist production, where work is no longer as physical, but, you know, in most developed countries, a majority of work is knowledge-based or it's, it's intellectual or it's emotional, like working in retail. It's like you're talking to customers. Within this mode of production, labor no longer occurs within the bounds of the factory, but actually permeates all aspects of life so that anything you do, which is like cultural or relates to developing a taste, whether it's like reading a book or watching a movie, 
makes you a more effective worker because that cultural work that you're doing for free and doing it is like it's a form of play, it's a form of enjoyment for yourself, ends up strengthening the labor that you do within the workplace. For example, like you as a writer, mm. you write about books, so you read books for fun, but then but they're always that work. work makes you a more valuable worker because that taste that you develop outside of work kind of bleeds into your work. Yeah, well, I always say literally anything I do, unfortunately, is workified. Like I have very few things in my life that don't relate to work because my job is to comment on cultural events, which means anytime I consume anything that is a cultural anything, Mm. I'm working. So anytime I scroll through TikTok, I'm working. Anytime Anytime you watch a movie. I'm working. Anytime I read a book, I'm working because all of those inform my job. And also, because if I watch a movie for fun, but then I go and write an article about it, then I created work out of that movie. If I see a TikTok where I'm doom scrolling and then I write an article about it, I've like I've now turned watching that TikTok into work. Mm. And because I'm constantly on the lookout for something that is worth commenting on, because it's my full-time job to comment on things, everything is work. Everything is labor, which by the way, is it sucks. Like yeah. it's not good because I just can't relax and read a book without thinking about the way that it impacts everything else in my life. It's very frustrating. Every time you like something on Facebook or on Instagram, that, you know, it shapes your behavioral predictive algorithm, which creates a certain kind of value for Facebook through selling that data to Like advertisers. we're working for Facebook by creating content for it, working for Instagram by creating content to fill its feed. Like, exactly. Same with TikTok. So, so while the social factory as an idea existed before Facebook and these digital networks, it describes how under capitalism, every aspect of social life is subsumed into its productive flows. Sociality, being social itself, becomes a type of free labor. And I feel like the discourse and the use of AI reflects that to the utmost degree. How through everything being fed into AI algorithms and machine learning algorithms to then produce value for future capitalists, literally everything we do becomes a side of labor, but most problematically, it becomes a side of unpaid free labor. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize my point from last week with the idea of the social factory which again comes from the autonomous marxists so shout out to them all right let's introduce today's topic i feel like we had a really long intro today but we're here mm. so today we are going to talk about avatar 2 the way of water okay so we watched it and obviously had a lot of problems with watched its content it. yeah a couple months ago a couple months ago but I'm, we're still doing this episode a because we felt so strongly about this fucking movie but also b because when i talked about it on instagram briefly like in the stories i said something along the lines of wow like watched it and yep it's just as bad if not worse as a lot of people were claiming i had a few people ask what we meant and like they watched it and they didn't really get what was problematic about it and a couple people were like well isn't it progressive because it's like showing us that colonization is bad and we shouldn't burn down greenery and stuff like that and i feel like people either really hate it like us or they really love it and there's a few people caught in the middle who are a bit confused about why you would hate it and i think i'm very keen to talk about why i was really excited to talk about it because I feel like as a film, it's just almost like a microcosm of, I think, American culture, but also I think just popular culture kind of broadly. I think it shows some of the worst tendencies of Hollywood production and just perspectives on climate change and indigeneity. I'm kind of curious, when we went into the movie, what were you expecting? Were you expecting to enjoy it? Were you expecting to be critical of it? I was expecting to be critical because before we watched it, I had already seen that a lot of Native Americans were calling for the film to be boycotted. 
the literal reason I went to watch it was because I was expecting to critique. Like I, right. I was like, I want to critique this movie and I'm going to have to watch it if I want to critique it. So I'm going to have to watch it. It was a chore for me. It was like, I, see. I guess I'm going to have to watch this fucking movie because everybody is talking about it and people are asking me about it. So I need to watch it. Right. Whereas I was like, true, but also I thought the movie was just kind of a non-starter. So I was almost keen to watch it because I, I didn't want any substance within the film. Yeah, you thought it was I just a pretty movie. I didn't want any substance and I wanted to just ignore any substance if it tried to implement any because I just wanted to go with my 3D glasses because I never watch 3D movies because they're normally shit. But I just want to go with my 3D glasses, wanted to watch it in VMAX, wanted to watch it with the high refresh rate film and wanted to just kind of zone out and be like, I'm Navi for like <laughs> three hours. But I found the film incredibly boring. It's just an absolute snooze fest. And I was surprised at how kind of angry it made me. And I think it made me feel some interesting things, which I want to get into. So, shall we? Let's get into it. So, before we, like, really get into the nitty-gritty of this, I'll just give a quick synopsis for those of you who might have boycotted the film or just don't give a fuck about it and haven't seen it. Although, I feel like most people at this point have. Or it's made, like, $10 billion. Yeah. Surely everyone's seen it half uh, a dozen times. I feel like you'd be surprised. So this is obviously the sequel to the first Avatar movie, which was like Jake Sully, this American Marine, can become one of these blue Navi people through this Avatar. Lol, that's why it's called Avatar. And they live on this planet called Pandora, which Earth humans are colonizing because Earth is dying. And they want it for its resources, which is like the most classic American story ever. And then Jake Sully, who was meant to infiltrate the Navi, actually like falls in love with, you know, the chief's daughter. It's very Pocahontas. Sees their ways, which is very not Pocahontas. Joins the Navi and then fights against the humans. And he essentially like becomes the key leader of the Navi resistance to the humans. So that's kind of the first episode, episode, first movie. (laughs) And it was very controversial but also very well loved. Like people love, like white people loved that movie because it was like, yes, racism, bad. Don't burn down indigenous people's lands and protect the environment and animals. And then indigenous people were like, is this blackface? (laughs) So there was like, yeah, conversations there. And then the second movie is a direct sequel. It's set like, what, 15 years after the first one or something. Jake Sully now has four children, three and an adopted daughter with his Navi wife. And he is, like, the chief of this clan now. But then the humans are back for round two and his family is under persecution, so they escape. They leave their homeland so that the humans will stop trying to destroy it and seek refuge with another tribe of Navi. Yeah, so this new tribe, they live in, like, a Pacific Island paradise, okay? It's giving Maori, it's giving, like, New Zealand, it's giving Polynesia... If the Navi are meant to represent, like, kind of a generic group of indigenous peoples, then this new group of Navi are specifically meant to mimic Maori people. So Jake Sully, you know, is hiding among them, but of course the humans catch up and then they start essentially bioterrorism against this tribe and attack their friends, which are these water creatures that resemble whales called Tulkun that are beautiful Best and intelligent. Yeah, definitely like the only kind of enjoyable part of this movie. Gorgeous creatures, but of course humans being humans only see them as a depletable resource because they have a very valuable brain oil that makes people like immortal. It just seems like a strange thing to add into this universe, immortality. But anyway, questions aside, they are hunting the Tulkun and then they actively start to hurt 
the Tulkun that are bonded with this tribe and it's essentially a threat of like if you don't give us Jake Sully we're going to destroy your little whales and then there's like a big war action sequence obviously because Jake is like we have to take a stand they're going to hurt our family and he's once again the white savior of another group of Navi who he leads and it's just like really we're doing this again then there's this actually I hate to admit but kind of cool like ship action sequence that is very reminiscent of like the end of Titanic which we rewatched actually and the parallels were like kind of mind-blowing Titanic goes kind of hard not oh yeah lie. you watched that for the, for first, the first time. time yeah we watched it in the cinemas on Valentine's Day I love Titanic but I hadn't seen it many years Mitch watched it for the first time but a lot of it yeah you can definitely see James Cameron's like a fascination with the ocean and ships yeah. in that movie the same dude definitely made all three of these movies yeah like yeah. you can tell it's very obvious but back to my short turned very long. Look, it was a fucking three-hour movie, so I feel like oh, me summarizing so it in five long. minutes is like a feat. I kind of wanted to rewatch it, but it just got me fucked no. for the three hours. Did you talk about Miles? Oh yeah. By the way, the new human threat is led by Colonel Miles, who we thought died at the end of the first movie. He was like the main antagonist, one of the least compelling villains. Yeah, and he's bad. Like, you couldn't come up with a new villain. You had to like bring back the dead. It's just yeah. lazy. And it seems he's going to be. And then he gets the killed and brought well. back again in this movie. So he's like just apparently never going to die. Anyway, the film ends with them, like, defeating the humans, as you would expect. But, you know, twist, Colonel Miles survives, and therefore you can expect there to be more dramas. And also now Jake Sully and his family are staying with the water tribe. And I forgot what they're called, and I also don't care to learn because I just feel like their name is racist. I don't even want to say it. Anyway, and now he's, like, now he's part of this new race. Like, he's one of them now. So he's he's essentially race-hopped from being human to being, like, the forest Navi to now being, like, a water Navi. And he's, yeah, got to catch them all. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my synopsis. The most obvious criticism of this film that dates back to, like, the first one is its depiction of race, or rather its depiction of race that isn't really race. So it's well-known that the Avatar people, the Navi people in the first film, were based on real Indigenous people. And James Cameron has always been very open about that. Like, it's not speculation. It's not a reach. He himself is like, yeah, they're kind of like Native Americans or black people, (laughs) which are apparently the same thing. So they have certain facial features that are like, just, you know, like black braids, broad noses. The way they enunciate words is very reminiscent of certain tribes and groups of people. It's definitely a mashup of like Native American tribes and then also with a dash of like African tribes as Mm. well. And that was criticized very heavily because it very much perpetuated the myth of the noble savage. I think a lot of white people who watch the movie are like, but it's good because it shows that white people can be bad and we shouldn't hurt indigenous people. And it's like, okay, but let's let's have some critical thinking with the way the Navi, which are supposed to be indigenous people, are depicted. For the first part, they're literally aliens. The indigenous people are literally aliens and the human people are all white. So in the first movie, all of the main human characters are white and then like almost all of the Na'vi were played by black and brown people. So even in the casting, there was a very obvious and deliberate choice to make humans white and aliens black and brown. And what the fuck do you think that says about how people of color are otherized and they're weird and different and literally alien is a slur used to discuss immigrants in America, like it's just, it, there's no subtlety to it. It's so on the nose. But despite this, the Navi people are like 
likable. We're supposed to side with them and not the humans because while the humans are, like, greedy and obsessed with, like, pillaging and colonizing and imperialism and stealing resources, the Na'vi have this, like, really beautiful relationship with the land. You know, they're a really communal group. They have that kind of Eastern philosophy of, like, non-individualism. They just be vibing. They just be vibing. And this, this is very much the myth of the noble savage. So it's the idea that these indigenous groups, while being technologically behind or while being savages, quote-unquote, in that way, but they possess this mystical spirit that humans or white people cannot conceive of. So they might be inferior to white people in some ways, but they do have something we don't, right? And it's a very racist stereotype because it really mystifies, in this case, indigenous people, and it makes them seem othered in a way that is more offensive because they're literally not conceived of as human. Their humanity is stripped of them. So the noble savage, you've seen it everywhere. You've seen it in Pocahontas. You've seen it in most depictions of Native Americans in any Western media and pop culture. But it's, yeah, very intense in Avatar in this movie and it continues to be in the other ones. We were discussing this yesterday, but I feel like they represent the other as the other only as the other, and they're not unothered in the process of the film, but we're supposed to come to appreciate or valorize their otherness. Yeah. Going back to this, the physical um, similarities the Na'vi hold with, like, stereotypes of non-white people, David Brooks for the New York Times made the point, which I thought, this is not a quote, just, like, paraphrasing a point that he made, where he was essentially, like, in the Avatar universe white people are rationalist and technocratic while colonial victims are spiritual and athletic and when i saw athletic i was like oh my god i didn't even think about that but that is so true so the navi might be behind when it comes to technology especially in warfare like while the humans have like bombs and guns the navi have like arrows um but they're athletic and it feels like the same stereotype of like black people being athletic or like Native Americans being athletic and that being their worth. And you see that in literally every colonized group and literally every Native people. Like you see it here in Australia with the way that like Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and Maori people are treated as being intellectually inferior. They're actually like they're like dumb essentially and unevolved or backwards. It's so racist. But at the same time, we want them on our football teams. We want them to run our races for us. We want them to win athletic games for us because that's something they can do because what they lack for in brains, they make up in brute strength. Like, it's a disgusting stereotype. It's obviously very prevalent here in Australia. It's prevalent in the US with like black people and like things like basketball and sports and the idea that black kids get in on, on like sports scholarships, but everybody else gets in on their own merit, like these really racist stereotypes. And it really, this movie reinforces that so much because these Navi people like cannot conceive of what the humans are capable of creating, but they're athletic and that gives them an edge. Yeah, the white people are intelligent and technologically advanced, but kind of evil. And the Navi are fit and sexy. Mm-hmm. Mm. And they are very sexualized. And it really ties into even things like fucking, oh, what was that practice called where they would like measure a skull? Oh, uh... I don't know. But Fuck. The, that'll come, I know, that's going to annoy me because I feel like I know this word. But anyway, it's like that kind of era of eugenics and this idea of like the white man being rational and intellectual and then these other groups of people as being like animals. They're specimens. They're athletic specimens. 
which just, yeah, this very much reiterates these movies. And something I find really funny, actually, is that... Phrenology? Phrenology, yes. That's what I was thinking of. But yeah, what I find really funny is like, so James Cameron did respond to Backlash with the first Avatar film when they were called out for casting like all people of colour as Na'vi and all white people as humans. And it seems really funny because he like kind of apologised for that and said he would rethink the second film. And in the second film, they fixed that issue by just casting more white people as Na'vi. But it actually backfired because they ended up having white people cast as bootleg Maori people, like copying their accents and the way they like speak their mannerisms to the point where it's just brown face and caricaturized. So it actually became more racist, if that was possible. Um, And just another quick thing on the original movie before I really get into Avatar 2, because I feel like we have to kind of lay that groundwork. There's also obviously the white messiah, the white savior, which Avatar 1 is wholly about. It's like the Navi people weren't able to liberate themselves or form a coherent resistance without the help of Jake Sully, a white human man. He needs to liberate them and he leads their revolution and he is why they survive. And then through that, he gains the respect of the Navi and he is voted their leader, which is just, yeah. I don't need to explain to you guys what is wrong with the white savior complex. Like the idea that indigenous people's resistance or struggle will never be worthy, capable or successful without a white leader is harmful in a lot of ways. Like I don't even think, I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. But yeah, it's a very colonialist trope that again reinforces the inferiority of indigenous peoples and their lack of like intellect. So moving on to the current film, it received a lot of chatter and backlash before it even came out when like promos came out and trailers came out because... Maori people saw the trailer and they were like, wait, is this play about us? Like, it's so obviously a caricature of Maori people. It's shocking. I love this comment by Mana Tyne, a 19-year-old from Queensland. The Washington Post interviewed a bunch of Maori people about how they feel about this movie and she was one of them. And she pointed out how offended she was by the fact that the film, it's water Navi people, the bootleg Maori people, all have like tribal tattoos or tribal adjacent tattoos. But these tribal tattoos like don't actually, they're not coherent. And she says that this tattoo is called a moko. It's a type of tattoo that is culturally significant and it's readable. That's the important part. Crucially, a Maori person can look at it and know what it says and like know what it signifies. And to reduce that in this movie and put these abstract, meaningless shapes onto these bodies that are meant to represent them and like just serve these like deeply significant, culturally meaningful tattoos as like a more aesthetic kind of feature to put on these characters to make them exotic is like so fucked. It's like cultural appropriation to the max. Um, and there are a few people that this, I'll, I'll link the article because it's really good, but there are like a lot of people that were interviewed for this movie who all kind of had similar criticisms Autumn Asher Blackdeer, an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver, told the publication how offended she was at the way that it uses aesthetics of Native people. She's from the Southern Cheyenne tribe, which she said has very distinct physical characteristics that they're kind of known for, one being a specific type of pronounced nose that the Navi then exhibit. And she said that because the movie kind of draws from all these multiple specifically indigenous tribes from different areas of the world, it kind of implies that all native groups are the same. 
Maori people are the same as Native American people are the same as Native African tribes. Like, they're all the same, which is very classic white people. Um, but something that she also mentioned that I thought was interesting was she feels that it's a harmful stereotype that's been furthered by, quote-unquote, pretendians, which is a term she uses for non-Native people who use generic Native clothing or accessories to appear Indigenous. And there's definitely discourse, I think less so maybe in Australia than in America because the way our country handles Indigenous identity is different. But there's definitely an issue in America of people like faking being Indigenous or faking being Black for social clout. And she feels that like these movies, especially because Jake Sully is able to just put on, literally put on the body, like have the features and the clothes. And that like makes him Navi, like he becomes one of them. There's nothing inherently stopping him from doing that. And she feels like that is dangerous for people who do that in the US because it's really harmful. And it essentially implies that anybody can just put this on and become this identity, which she's not okay with. Mm. And I understand why she's not okay with that because it's essentially cultural appropriation. Yes, certainly. It it seems that within the film, and I think the example of the the tattoos is the most kind of revealing. (laughs) Yeah. But race becomes entirely aestheticized. Yes. Which- isn't necessarily completely problematic because there would be a way to tell the story that, you know, like, I don't believe race is some essential quality. Like, yeah. race is... Pe- people become racialized as a social yes. process, but I, and I think it's partly an aesthetic process, but I don't think it's solely an aesthetic process. Yeah, because I would agree that I think race isn't... Like, race is a construct, and I believe that it's a construct. Mm. I am sure that if we didn't exist in a white supremacist society, the way we approach race would be very different and we wouldn't think of ourselves as so othered from everybody else. And in a world where race didn't exist, this would be fine. But race does exist in our world. It also exists in the Navi world because we see like racism between the two Navi tribes and we see racism from human to Navi. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you can't show clear racism between all these tribes who obviously do have a construct of race and then also like be like, oh, but not but Jake Sully specifically can rise above a construct of race and can become any race he wants because he's the white man. And white men are the default and can become the default easily. The last point I want to make on that before we move into more complex ideas of colonization and race was something that another person said for the article, Johnny Jay, who is part of the Otto, Missouri and Choctaw tribes. They essentially said that it was racist and harmful for Avatar filmmakers to glorify colonialism and peddle native tropes for entertainment because, like, Indigenous people worldwide have been fighting for their rights, for the protection of their land, their water, their biodiversity. Um, they've been trying to safeguard their people for a very long time and since before white people gave a fuck about climate justice. And so this person found it, like, harmful, this movie, that it, like, has all these fucking native tropes on this white saberism, all these colonial ideas, because in reality, like, that is not at all what this is like and it completely diminishes all the hard work Indigenous people are actually doing and all the self-determination that they have, which I think is true. And that kind of leads us then to conversations around colonialism in this movie, which is, there's a lot to talk about. Yes, this is the element of the film that while I was watching it was kind of most salient to me and what I really wanted to talk about most is the way the film portrayed colonization, imperialism, technology, and war. And I think it's actually really interesting to talk about because it kind of is a way to talk about something that I'm interested in and I have wanted to talk about for a while, which is how a film is made impacts what the film is about or how there can be a disconnect between the way a story is told, 
the way the film kind of mechanically or how the film operates textually can almost be at a, a disconnect or can be in contradiction with the message of the film itself because the film is about colonization. The film yeah. is against colonization. The film is against environmental catastrophe. It's a film about environmentalism. It would be very hard to argue that the film isn't condemning colonization mm. and isn't condemning climate change. And it's also interesting, I feel, how the two films, Avatar 1 and Avatar 2, kind of operate and how they almost respond to even current discourses. I think the first film, and again, I haven't seen this since I was like nine years old. The first film is about coming to Pandora to pillage for a certain resource. I forget what it's called. But that's about colonization, but in this almost imperialistic sense that they want to turn Pandora productive. The second film, I think, is still about colonization, but it has a more almost environmentalist slant because it's about Earth becoming increasingly less inhabitable because of climate catastrophe, because of the way humans have been treating this planet like a current world, like IRL. So it's about going back to Pandora to potentially see that as a space to colonize to then, you know, it's like climate immigration. But what is fascinating to me is that the film is simultaneously a critique of the way humans utilize technology to imperialize, to destroy the earth, to colonize. And it's clearly a critique of that. You know, how could humans use such a powerful tool, such an incredible tool to do such harm? But the film cannot help but fetishize and be fascinated and be astonished by technology as the film itself is the product of such a substantial advancement of technology. The film itself is the product of this technological achievement, but it also critiques technology within it, but also not quite. Yeah, it's interesting because the film critiques colonization by showing it very graphically to show the horrors of it. But in showing it very graphically, it fetishizes it and glorifies it because it's meant to be this astounding spectacle. And we're meant to be impressed by like how much harm and destruction these humans are capable of. Like that is, it's meant to be horrifying, but you're also meant to be in awe. Yes. And that is problematic. Yes. That's what I find fascinating because it reminds me of this very classic quote from French New Wave director Francois Truffaut, where he says, there is no such thing as an anti-war film. Uh, you could contest that. You could try and throw out some examples. But for the most part, films that are about war, I mean, most films about war are like anti-war because it's just- Because they show the you, trauma they of They show the violence of war and that's just meant to be condemnation in and of itself. However, that shit's always exciting. That's just the language of film, or at least it's the language of film as we can currently make sense of it. It's the only way we can make sense of film is through this bombastic uh, excitement, this expensive display of- uh, might, essentially, whether that's military or filmic might. Similarly, the film, through its kind of portrayal, this almost om omnipresent uh, perspective, because we kind of move back and forth between Jake Sully and his family and his children and the Navi people, but we also move to like the military perspective, which makes sense narratively to kind of understand the protagonist and the antagonist. Their motivations. Their motivations. But what's always fascinating during the scenes where we see you know, Colonel Miles organizing his squad, organizing an, an attack, or we see them in their base, is that the film is fascinated with the technology they're using. It's meant to be anti the creation of such destructive technology. Yeah. But it can't help but show how fucking cool it is. Or at least it should be 
anti this, but it can't help but be like, look at that mech suit. This is cool as shit. Or look at those dogs that are running around, like those those mechanical dogs. Like, isn't that cool? And even in that scene early in the film, which we discussed after we watched it, where Jake Sully's kids are looking at like a crashed helicopter. And then that's the scene where Colonel Miles kidnaps them. Is that we cross cut between their two perspectives. But we see Miles' team coordinate, which is supposed to be kind of scary because we know how proficient they are. But also we're meant to be like, isn't that cool how squad teams do that? It's like how we love watching films, even if we hate war. It's always fun to see films about military special operations because there is just... Almost. There's a satisfaction in it. There's a satisfaction in, like a, in, in seeing a well-oiled machine. Yes, operating. it's also it's also the way, and this is like kind of different because it's less political. But it's also why we love like heist movies. But yes, if somebody yes. actually robbed a bank, we would morally condemn them. But we love a heist movie because we love we love a the, process. Yes, we love the satisfaction of a like you said, a well-oiled machine, a good process where all the puzzle pieces fit together and it results in success. We right. love to see that. And shit. what's the most well-oiled machine? The industrial military complex. Exactly. You know, it, like it's it's fascinating. And I think James Cameron is truly one of the the biggest fetishists. In Hollywood, for that reason, the way he fetishizes spectacle and wants to critique spectacle through spectacle, which just like makes the film a contradictory mess. And the film, yes, the film is technologically brilliant. It's it's truly, you know, mind bending how much the, the work and how much money was spent on it. But that's what makes it so detestable for me while watching it. And while I was watching it, I felt like I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be consuming this. Think of just how much money and resources were spent on a film that doesn't really need to exist. And I think it's really important off the back of that to yeah. discuss like, yes, this technology, this expensive technology that was made for this movie in movie as well, like in narrative, the mm. kind of machines that the humans use and how we're meant, like the Navi are afraid of them because they just hold so much power that they can't even conceive of and could never really fight against. It's meant to be horrifying and it's not. And not only is it like just fetishized in the sense that like the camera literally is telling us to look at this and be in awe of it, but even in like the press rounds after the movie. So I, you know, obviously working in the media was like very interested in the press coverage of Avatar and something I saw come up constantly were articles interviewing the production designers and being like, wow, like, how did you come up with this? And the production designers being like, oh man, like I'm so, this this is so cool doing this. And look at this. There's literally, I'll link it in the sources. There's a variety article. Avatar 2, production designers explain every vehicle and the way of the water from sea dragons to scale suits. And it's like, this movie is literally about how destructive these machines are and how evil they are. And then after the movie comes out, we're having all these articles about like, how fucking sick is it? It's so cool. And it, like, I would say it misses the point of the movie, but it doesn't because the movie's not actually making the point it thinks it's making, right? Mm. It kind of reminds me a little bit, they're not in the same way, but um, like with Hunger Games, how the entire series is about the fact that the capital deflected these people from thinking about revolution by creating a love triangle and romanticizing something that was really tragic. And then the movie comes out. And by the way, I just, I'm a Hunger Games stan. I fucking love the books. I think they're like some of the best YA books I've ever read. So good. Very, very anti-capitalist books. And then like the movies come out and they're very like, in a, in some ways revolutionary. And then the only thing people took away from that 
was the love triangle. And yes. it's like you are literally missing the point because the whole point of the books is to show that a love story was concocted in order to cover up revolutionary behavior and then you do that yourselves. And the difference between that is Hunger Games actually had a point, but this movie doesn't. So it, right. it, I wouldn't even say it's missing the point because it doesn't have a point. Yes, it's interesting, the limitations of critique Yes, in this context. And again, the way in which the camera, the way a given scene is shot, tells a different story than actually what's happening kind of textually. The biggest scene, which kind of just made this all very clear while <sighs> I was watching this for me, was the wailing scene, which I think for a lot of people is the kind of the most affecting emotional scene. It was very distressing the film. scene. It was very distressing where you see the Tal Kun. Tal Kun. Tal Kun. It's like a mama Tal Kun and she has a little baby. Yes. Uh, and mind you, just before that, we've seen that this mama Tal Kun is like bonded to the chief's wife of like this native tribe and the wife is pregnant and the also the mother whale Tulkun has a baby and it's like this real like humanizing of them it's this real like connection the spiritual connection they're like sisters yes. they're like sisters who are having babies at the same time and we've really we've bonded with this creature right and we see this creature hunted in an act of essentially terrorism to uh to intimidate the tribe yeah and to begin a war yeah essentially they're literally, like, sacrificed in the name of terrorism. So this scene is horrible. And it's meant to be. And it's meant to it's be It's meant like, to be upsetting. And the music is telling us, how can humans be so cruel? How could they do such a thing? And of course, again, it, the film fetishizes the process of hunting the whale. I could actually talk for hours about just, like, how fucking fetishized the whaling process was. And the fact that we see... One second, the terror that this Tolkien is feeling and the deep distress it's in because it's trying to protect its its baby. And then it cuts to the, like, hunters being like, hell yeah, this is fucking sick. And, like, not all the hunters are meant to be bad guys either. Like, one of the people on this team is meant to be sympathetic, the scientist. And, it's like, we're showing their side and how much fun they're having. And then we're showing the Tulkoons being distressed. And we're, while it's telling us that we should feel sad for them, it's actually, it's, it's thrilling. It is thrilling. It's thrilling. The fucking, it's like there's a chase sequence, there's an action scene. Like, the special effects are incredible. And also, like I said before, the portrayal of process. We're, we're meant to find the process of whaling. Yeah, because it's very interesting. deeply explained. Because it's like, shoot over here, and it's almost like we're, we're seeing this machine uh, mm. operate uh, effectively. And so there's this disconnect between the film telling us that this is horrible, but also telling us, because, again, it's a film in 3D. It's an infantile 3D spectacle. The wailing is spectacularized and we're told this sucks, but isn't it fucking cool to look at? Yeah. Isn't it brilliant? Like, it's, isn't it's it astonishing? Thrilling. And in the cinema, while I was watching that scene, all I was thinking about was what would this be like if we were seeing this in like what the 4DX or the D-Box seats where the, the seats kind of move around and I think they throw, uh, they spray water at you. And I'm like, it actually just made me incredibly sad because I saw the way this film was trying to, you know, paradoxically make whaling aesthetically brilliant. James Cameron, in creating this film, is unable to criticize ecological catastrophe 
imperialism and colonization because he cannot help but fetishize and glorify all of it and glamorize that's just it his cinematic and make language. it sleek and like the acts of colonization are sleek and beautiful and, and wonderfully done and that in itself is like it feels like a paradox mm. and just really quickly on that talking thing I've linked another article in the sources also by Variety because they were really I think I've linked like a few Variety articles they were just on their Avatar coverage but this one Avatar 2 VFX team on the evolution of the Tulkun and simulating water for performance capture in this article they interview like the team on how they made this sequence happen and one of them he literally says oh my god like this is a scene I'm most proud of and the way they're just talking about like how cool it was and stuff is like so deeply removed from the content of what the scene actually was to be able to talk about it that way like I know it's not real and I know people are going to be like well it's not real so of course they can talk about it that way it's like yes I know that but this is exactly what we're trying to say where this movie is incapable of actually having any deep meaningful content because it is just so deeply fetishized and it really is just a bunch of tech bros bragging about how cool you can make this movie like that's what it's actually about there is no deep actual commentary on colonization and race from this film Mm. One last point I wanted to make uh, on the on the topic of colonization and technology was kind of a parallel to Apocalypse Now, which I was thinking about while watching this film. Apocalypse Now, I think came out in the 70s, 80s. A very, very classic film about the Vietnam War, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And as a film, again, like Avatar is a critique of environmentalism and colonization, Apocalypse Now is undoubtedly... It's a war film. It's an anti-war film, which is a critique of the Vietnam War, the dehumanization of both the Vietnamese people, but also the effects on the soldiers that, you know, who are just psychopathic, essentially, and are made psychopathic. Jean Baudrillard, who was a you know famous French philosopher, wrote the book uh, Simulacra and Simulation, wrote about how Apocalypse Now, from his perspective, actually continued the Vietnam War despite being critical of the Vietnam War. And he said that because if you've seen the film, you'll know that the film is an absolute epic. It's a, you know, so much money was put into it. At the time, in terms of special effects, it was a technological feast for the eyes. The film portrayed the bombings in Vietnam by going to Vietnam and blowing shit up. But it was blowing shit up, you know, quote unquote, to talk about how war is so bad. But in terms of just the material effects of the film... The film actually, in its very production, in its very use of technology, continued the war. Yeah, because it kept literally. bombing the city just to record yeah, just it. Like, bombing like the forest and this, this, this natural like the kinda... the ecological disaster that film was creating for creatures that lived in these forests, just for it to be consumed by the eye of these Western viewers, is yeah reminiscent of this movie for sure. Mm. So I went back to the part in Simulacra and Simulation where Jean Baudrillard talks about Apocalypse Now, and I just wanted to read a little bit of it because I think it's essentially just what he says about Apocalypse Now, you know, tracks one-to-one with my perspective on Avatar 2. Baudrillard says, quote, Coppola makes his film like the Americans made war. In this sense, it is the best possible testimonial with the same immoderation, the same excess of means, the same monstrous candor, and the same success. The war as entrenchment, as technological and psychedelic fantasy. The war as a succession of special effects. The war becomes filmed even before being filmed. The war abolishes itself in its technological test. And for the Americans, it is primarily that. A test site, a gigantic territory to which to test their arms, their methods, their power. Coppola does nothing but that. Test cinema's power of intervention. Test the impact of a cinema that has become an immeasurable machinery of special effects. In this sense, his film is really the extension of the war through other means, the pinnacle of this failed war, and its apotheosis. 
The war became film. The film becomes war. And the two are joined by their common hemorrhage into technology. Unquote. I also find that quote really interesting because what it says about like the film just being a means to test boundaries of technology mm. is literally exactly what, what Avatar, Avatar is. is. Yeah. It is purely a means to test the boundaries of cinematic technology. Yes. That is like what he is doing. That's, That's what James Cameron has always done throughout his he's career. He's always done that. That's like what he loves to do. He loves to create movies that like push boundaries and the story and the racial impacts of it are kind of irrelevant. Yes. In Cameron's technological display, which is a critique of colonization, I think he performs another kind of cinematic or representational colonization. Yes. And in talking about animals and environmentalism, like with the Tulkun, I think there's also another really interesting element that you brought up to me. I actually hadn't thought about it, but I think you're really right. And it's the domination of animals. Mm, Yes, the portrayal of indigeneity and indigenous philosophy. The whole thing is about the way of water in the second film, where we see like this almost superficial, or at least the philosophy is sound, but the way it's actually implemented in the film is kind of superficial. The way of the water, water has no beginning or end. It's about kind of being one with your environment, which is how we often think of First Nations people. It's like one with the they have a certain kind of spirituality that we don't have access to and they are one with their environment. When they eat an animal, it's like the animal is giving themselves up to them because they're on the same plane. Yeah. And there's also a sense that in our time of ecological collapse, we we being white people, need to adopt this kind of philosophy because it's this philosophy that's going to get us out of this rut that we created. Yeah, especially because, you know, Indigenous folk have been looking after their lands for, like, millennia. Yes. And white people managed to destroy them in, like, 250 years. And then it's this idea of we need to go back to nature. We need to go back to what Indigenous people are doing. Which, like, in and of itself is fine. Yes, well, it's true. true. It is true. Like, yeah, we really could fucking learn from First Nations people and the way they like love and care for their land and community. That part's not problematic. Yes, but the way the film presents it is through mostly like this literal interconnection with the world. They yes, put they've got little, the, at the end of the ponytail yeah, thing, they've got like the, their, their little tendrils that, that they can plug into like living things, living be it things, trees yeah. or like, you know, in the first movie it was those flying animals mm. that they would like connect into and then they like kind of have, they're like drift compatible, like a Pacific Rim. And then in the second movie, we see that the water tribe has this with these like water. What would you even call them? Because they're not quite fish. Yes, I know. But yeah, and then they can like, they can ride them pretty much the same way and use them as like transport. So Um, here we're meant to see in this kind of reification of connection, we're meant to see how one with the environment they are is is how they're one. They can literally plug into and physically connect to animals. But it's so funny because this is actually such a Western conception of oneness where you literally plug into animals, but you never see an animal plug into a Navi. Yeah, because this point it's is- It's still like a form of an- domination. Yes, because they have to like insert- Yes. They're like, it's very, it's very heterosexualized. Oh, it's, it's and it's, it's specifically like, masculinized. Yeah, like, it's they very rub P&B. they their phallus all over yeah. the, the natural environment. Like, that's how I saw it when I, like, it's- it's kind of horrible to say, but I just kind of saw them as rubbing their their phallus all over the environment and enjoyed when it kind of tingled. You know, like it's, <laughs> I didn't. It's like envision that. It's like they're they're fucking these animals and taking control. Yes, I would agree. Like I did not think of maybe the. So yeah, I'm just too but- caught up on the on the phallus. <laughs> 
It's very Freudian of you. Yeah. Um, no, I do agree, though, that it feels like a metaphor for sexual domination. Yeah. Because its idea of insertion is obviously very a masculine idea. Well, that's the only way Cameron, I suppose, can conceive Well, yeah, literally, as like a man who exists outside of Indigenous culture and does not have access to the spirituality of it, the only way... He understands oneness is by insertion. Yeah, it's and that's how a lot of men conceive of oneness. It's that the environment is consenting to the domination. That's that's the difference. Yes. Oh my god. Yes, that's exactly what it is. You know, in in Western culture, we fuck the environment, but it's you know, it's it's forceful. We dominate the environment. Yeah. Uh, Indigenous people, according to Avatar, it's loving. It's it's loving, loving. and the environment consents to to being. Yeah, it's like Westerners fuck the environment, and Indigenous people are like loving it. They make love to the environment. Yeah, I guess that's like the (laughs) metaphor, right? It's like it's disgusting. Obviously, it's 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 so icky, and I hate. Like, I don't want it to make it sound like I think that's what's happening. I just think that's what the politics of the film suggests. Oh yeah, because it's so infantile, such a juvenile way to exactly. It's such a ridiculous way to perceive connection, but I think it's also the way that a lot of like privileged straight white men, especially in like positions of power, perceive connection is through insertion. It's why. Oh my god, like this is gonna sound really far-fetched and unrelated but i feel like it's related i am currently in the corner of fleabag tiktok which i have actually not fully watched the show but i've seen literally every episode of it via tiktok that's another story but i saw i'm keen to see where this goes i promise (laughs) promise it relates to you also spoilers for fleabag if you care basically the priest tells the main character he's like the hot priest she's in love with him whatever he's obviously not gonna reciprocate because he's a celibate priest but he says, like, I can't sleep with you. And she's like, why? Why not? And she's, like, harassing him, like, jokingly. It's, like, banterous. But he's like, I can't sleep with you because I'll fall in love with you. And that's, like, that's a very um, loved kind of scene. It's gif everywhere. It's a TikTok everywhere. It's, like, the moment, you know? But somebody pointed out in a TikTok comment, and I'm going to relay their TikTok comment all the way back to our episode because I actually think it's very similar. But their TikTok comment was, like, yeah, it's really interesting because she's already in love with him. But he's not going to fall in love with her until he fucks her because he, as a man, cannot perceive of that oneness without the insertion. Right. Because she didn't need to fuck him to fall in love with him, but he would need to fuck her to fall in love with her because it's the idea of insertion and oneness. And there's a lot of problematic ideas in like heteronormative films and movies where like men can't connect with a woman until they literally put their penis inside her because that is a that's an intimacy that they need that's like a that's as close as they can get to connection and intimacy so while this was a very random tangent of feedback i swear it's relevant because i feel like it's exactly why it does the same thing of like this creator of this movie cannot conceive of a oneness that exists outside of penetration Mm. because it's just such a like heteronormative cis white man thing Mm. to think i told you it was going somewhere yeah (laughs) And this kind of heteronormative, masculinized, cis man vibe, I feel like kind of brings us to the last bit of problematic politics in this movie, which which is its portrayal of family and gender. So we've Mm. talked a little bit about gender with this like weird domination, sexual domination of animals. But then also it's just like how, okay, I feel like I'm surprised the lack of conversation I've seen around this, but Jake Sully is a military dad. And he has a very toxic relationship with his sons, which we're not saying is toxic. The movie portrays as toxic. Like yeah. The movie knows it's toxic. Yeah. Where it's like toxic masculinity. He isn't able to show affection to his sons, which he can to his daughters because they're women. 
but he's like emotionally constipated when it comes to his sons. He holds them to really high standards and they are constantly chasing his approval and it leads to like them always being in dangerous situations or putting themselves in dangerous situations or acting out because they just nothing they can do is ever right. So they try and do more and more dangerous tasks because if they get that right, maybe that'll get their dad's affection. And it's like obviously fucked because, you know, he's become a really toxic father and it results in his eldest son being killed. His eldest son dies trying to make his dad proud and protect his siblings. It's just like this wouldn't have happened if you had a better fucking bond with your son. Which, like, that's not our take. That's the movie's take. I presume that will be dealt with later in the series. But it's really interesting the way the film, despite being able to portray whole different alien nations, is still unable to create a way of living that isn't heteronormative, patriarchal Nuclear families. Nuclear families. Because... Avatar 2 is a family movie in a way that the first one isn't. The entire movie is about him trying to keep his family safe. It's giving like Taken or like there's other kind of war movies where like a man is in Iraq with his white wife and kids and then they have to protect themselves from the colonized. It's that kind of movie. I'm just remembering the voiceover. I think it's at the beginning. Like it's a man's duty to take care of his family. Yeah, it's literally about how it's a man's job to protect his wife and children. And I'm literally just remembering that now, but I'm pretty sure the film- opens with that and ends with that. It bookends the film yeah. in a way that it doesn't actually problematize yeah. uh, this, you know. So while it understands that Jake Sully is harsh to his children, it does acknowledge that the reason he's harsh to them is toxic masculinity because it perpetuates its own idea of toxic masculinity in the bookends of the film. When he like starts it off being like, you know, this is my job as a man, and then it ends with him succeeding in his job as a man. And that is like to him... Like, he's he's succeeded. Like, mm. he has done his job, even though his son is literally dead, so he didn't protect his family. But I find also just that really interesting because something I noticed watching it is his fucking wife saves his life and his children's lives many more times than he does. Like, she's definitely the more competent one between mm. the two of them, but it's it's actually apparently he's the one that protected the family. I was like, I don't think that's true. But yeah, this, this emergence of, like, this nuclear family. And it's interesting because then there's this other character, Spider, who is a human boy that was left behind after the events of the first movie and then was raised around Jake Sully and his children and the other Na'vi kids. So he's like raised Na'vi and like sees himself as Na'vi, but he is racially a human. And it's really interesting, like the family dynamics of that, because initially it's like we as the audience, we see him as like one of them. Because he was raised with their children. Like, he doesn't know humans. He's not, like, that's not his life. And I would see him as, like, yeah, like, he might be, like, ethnically human, but this is his culture. He doesn't know any other cultural language. Like, this is his, this is his life. Um, but the film constantly introduces tensions that removes him from Na'vi. He can never be one of them. And he can never be part of the family. And I find this tension really interesting between like Jake Sully's nuclear family and this adoptive human child, even though another one of their children is also adopted, but that child is Navi, so it's okay. But there's like weird family politics around what a nuclear family is and how threats to nuclear families are threats to society because Spider, that child, is considered a threat to their family because of his ties to humanity. And then at the end of the film... He saves Colonel Miles, who is a human. Mm. So he chooses to have some solidarity with humans. And by Family doing that... prevails at the end. Well, by doing that, he ends up proving the argument right that he is a threat to the nuclear family and therefore to the Na'vi. And he exists as a complication. 
And it shows that like anything that is outside of the structure of a nuclear family, which he was outside of, he could never be part of their family, is like a threat to society, which is so fucked. I suppose so. I think I disagree slightly. I think the film actually suggests that the family can be inclusive. I think for the most part, Spider is ultimately Well, I think accepted. it's inconsistent is what I'm saying. Because right. he's not allowed to be part of this nuclear family, but Jake Sully is. Their adoptive daughter, Kiri, is. She's not his biological child. I, I think it it's kind just of, Spider, which complicates things, which is very interesting to me. But I also think the film, at least when I watched it, talks about the the kind of the flexibility and the everlasting nature of the family form, that it is able to adapt so that the family becomes prevalent, even if the family is made up of these kind of disparate elements. That is ultimately the creation of families, which is progress, if that makes sense. The family continues to be an effective way of organizing society because we've allowed it to take this uh, flexible, mutable, changeable form where we can include people from different races. Yes, I agree with that. And I think we're saying different things, but leading up to the same conclusion because- there's that scene at the end where I forgot her name, Jake Sully's wife, takes Spider hostage because she wants to do an exchange, her child for him. And in that way, she treats him as non-family. And then that's what creates the rift that leads him to save Colonel Miles because he feels solidarity with Colonel Miles as his, you know, biological father and human because he is like outed from the family in that moment. And so I feel like it's like a cautionary tale almost. She rejected him from the family and then he went and, like, helped the evil guy. Mm. So I feel like I agree with you. I yeah, agree. Yeah, I think we're coming from slightly yeah. different... Different perspectives, perspectives, but same point. But the same yeah. point. The scene I thought was most funny was when the youngest son, Jake Sully's youngest son, sees the girl, <laughs> I forget her name, to Sarah. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Uh, and like, <laughs> it's just so funny because it, it just becomes, like, this fanfic rom-com kind of like auga yeah love at first sight uh they're like the slow-mo camera he zones out the water drips off her fish body they (sighs) zoom in on her titties like it's very sexualized and she's supposed to be like 15 mind you yeah but for me like the film is suggesting that this is beautiful and this is what progress is progress is interracial relationships progress is when people from different races fuck and make families together is it, it's just when the family is able to spread and take a new form. That's mm. progress, when, when everyone can be part of the big family. Yeah. And, I, and I think I, we, we need to queer the Navi. It's giving, it's giving I don't see colour and, like, that level of racial politics as well, where it's, like, how white people think that, like, oh, like, when everybody intermarries and everybody becomes multi-race, like, we'll end racism, which is obviously not the case because racism... When we have our mixed-race nuclear families, then... You then, know, you know, our job is racism done. will end. When it's, like, uh, that presumes that racism is just a prejudice, not a systemic issue, right? So mm. it's, like, it's a useless point because racism is a deeply entrenched systemic issue. It's not just people not liking other people of other races. Mm. I mean, this is an issue... Uh, at least an issue I have with just science fiction or fantasy films more broadly. In these imaginative, fantastical, speculative worlds in which all of the underlying pillars of society have changed and you would think that the organization of society would also change, typically that's not the case. Typically Mm. the family prevails because, just as writers, because it's it's of course people, socialized people that are writing these texts within a world dominated by families cannot think of kinship outside of family. 
Yeah, and well, just can't think of the world differently. We see that critique a lot. I mean, we saw it with like Lord of the Rings. So people mm. can imagine like elves and dwarves and dragons, but they draw the line, the suspension of disbelief with like a black character existing in this universe. It's like the idea that fantasy often reproduces, mm. especially like Lord of the Rings, like the books, they're very Aryan. They're very white supremacist. It's like the Aryan race, the elves, and then the other races that are more like people of color are like inferior. Like it's a very racist series. I say... With love. I love Lord of the Rings, but I can also tell you that it's racist. The same way that Harry Potter is very fun and magical, but it's still, like, quite transphobic and it, like, cannot exist outside the idea of, like, heteronormative conservative families. The same way with, like, literally any media you consume. And it is always very interesting that, like, James Cameron can come up with this entire magical universe but can't conceive of a queer relationship. family, yeah. Yeah, and even, like, with the Tulkoons and their connection with them, they're all same-sex in the sense of, like, friendships. So I... I noticed that I'm um, like all of the ones who have connections with the Tulkoon, the Tulkoon that they have a connection with is the same gender as them. So it's like a female Tulkoon with like a mother. And I was like, that's so interesting that they like are going to enforce gender on a whale. <laughs> like, you know what? I, it's such a strange concept because why would it matter what gender the fucking whale is? Like, it's not human. They don't have concepts of gender and sex. Like, you should be able to bond with anything, but they can only bond the same way that we would see two girl best friends bond, like same-sex friendships, and that opposite-sex friendships are not friendships. And I found that really strange as well. Just a, just a little weird note that all of the Tolkien relationships must be platonic same-sex connections. And if and the fact that we don't have opposite-sex Tolkien friendships is reminiscent of people's just disbelief in like men and women interacting without it being sexual. Yes. And then kind of just my last point on it was, like, just a really basic one. It was just, like, good old sexism. I remember her name, Neytiri, the wife of Jake Sully. I noticed that, like, in the first movie even, you know, she's, like, it's very Pocahontas vibe. She's the powerful and athletic and intelligent daughter of the chief who Jake Sully romances and all that. And then now that Jake Sully's become the leader, she, like, defers to him. So she becomes his kind of inferior in a way like they're meant to be a partnership and we're meant to they're meant to be relationship goals in a lot of way like they're meant to be like mum and dad but she definitely does defer to him a lot she bows to his leadership a lot she allows him to overrule her especially in the raising of her children so when he's really hard on the kids like she will not step in and then afterwards she'll be like man like maybe a bit higher than him he'll be like no it must be done this way and she's like all right and it's just this idea that like she almost has no agency outside of him. But despite that, she's still a powerful warrior because like I said earlier, she always comes in at the right time and rescues everyone. Like she is this powerful warrior. And it's like, why is she not the leader? Why is it Jake Sully? Like, I just think it's just classic sexism of like, she married him and became his like, more of his advisor rather than his equal because like she's a woman and he's a man and men are naturally leaders and it's men's job to protect their family and clans and not women's jobs. So just like, I feel like we went to the same theory, but some of it's just basic sexism. It doesn't require critical thought at all. Mm. I feel like, in short, watch Titanic. That movie's kind of sick. Yeah, and it's much better than Avatar. Well, Titanic is also a spectacle, but I feel like part of the film is about this juxtaposition between the spectacle of, of the macro, you know, the ship falling apart and this kind of very small story. Because mm, uh, that's how it opens. Yes. In Avatar, the whole thing is a spectacle. And thus, when there's meant to be like an emotional moment, which is mediated through this, the technological spectacle of the film itself, there's a complete disconnect. Whereas I feel like in Titanic, there's a more kind of productive tension between the macro and the micro, the, the intimate and the spectacularized. I actually think it kind of works. And also because it's so large, it's able to 
make, you know, not particularly sophisticated, but it, it makes interesting points about class through the distribution of the massive space of the Titanic where the lower class people are spatialized at the bottom. And, well, and it's so class, interesting. The, the spectacle actually kind of does something. It's so interesting watching Titanic after watching Avatar because you're like, you are capable of this. This is a good movie that like adequately discusses the issues at hand that is able to create a spectacle and then be critical of its own spectacle and to show you how its own spectacle is fetishized. It's a bit self-aware. It's in dialogue with its own spectacle. Yeah, it's in dialogue. There is like some kind of awareness. Yeah. And then in Avatar, that's just completely doesn't exist. So yeah, just forget about Avatar. Just watch Titanic. Cool. Well, thank you for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Pia. So thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you like today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or you can even email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.